Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Bible study. Every Sunday morning, we meet in person and online every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Online, we're on our faithonhill.com website and our Facebook page as well. If you do uh, want to come in person, we let you know you have to wear a mask and observe all the social distancing that we've got going on, Um, but you are welcome to. Uh, If you're wondering how do we deal with the kids, well, any kid that comes is welcome. And what we do is we have uh, prepackaged sealed uh, packs that a kid can grab, and it has uh, a prepackaged snack. It has uh, some coloring sheets and some things to do. Um, If if a if a fig, if a child wants to and the parents wants to go with them, they can go back to the fellowship hall, and uh, we've got uh, stuff back there. It's not kids' church. There's there's no official childcare or anything like that, but we do have all of that available. We're very family friendly. Um, you know what? If if a, if a kid makes some noise, we're fine with it. So every Sunday morning at ten thirty online and in person. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor of Faith on Hill Church. And this morning we are finishing our study of the gospel of Mark. Next week, we are going to begin a series uh, that's going to tell the story of the Christian faith. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into that. But this week, we'll finish our study of the gospel of Mark. Uh, If in the past few weeks or this week you feel that I skip over something, it's most likely because back in the spring at Easter time for Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, we jumped ahead and we took those relevant passages from Mark's gospel and dealt with them then. So you can go back on our Facebook page and find those studies if you think we skipped over anything. But we are at the final hours of Jesus's life. He has been up for at least 24 hours by this point. He was unjustly and illegally arrested and tried. You were not supposed to be tried at night, arrested in secrecy. It was all supposed to be done in public with transparency. Nevertheless, that's what they had done. And in verse 1, chapter 15, it says, very early that morning, the chief priests with the elders The teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate was the governor of the Romans. The people of Israel had been occupied by the Roman Empire, and Pilate was the governor that had been appointed by the Romans over Israel and Jerusalem. So, the leaders of the people might have tried Jesus, might have condemned Jesus, but even they knew that they could not kill Jesus. They had no legal authority to do so. So they brought him to Pilate. And verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, replied Jesus. Now remember, this is not a casual conversation. Jesus has been up for 24 hours. He's exhausted. Jesus has been beaten and spit upon by this point. We, we saw that they blindfolded him and they hit him. They beat him. He probably has all the telltales of somebody who has been violently abused. Exhausted. 
Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, some things Jesus did to fulfill prophecy as a confirmation of his being the Messiah. Some things in Bible prophecy were there to show what Jesus was going to go through. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, prophesied that the Messiah would be silent before his accusers. And I believe the reason that Jesus is silent here is because if he were to speak the truth, they would have no reason to kill him. He was blameless. He was sinless. He was without fault. There was no reason for him to die, yet Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross, and this was the only way. So he was silent, and Pilate was amazed. Now, verse 6, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. It's a goodwill policy. You're the occupying force. The people don't really like that you are there. But once a year at the Passover festival, the governor would release a prisoner to the people as sort of a sign of goodwill. And he would let them pick who it was. Now, there was a man called Barabbas in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. Now, we aren't told much about this. The assumption is that Mark's audience would have had some familiarity with it. But apparently there had been an uprising, an insurrection against the Roman occupation. And Barnabas had been with that group and had murdered at least one person, if not many people, in that insurrection. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. So what that means is Pilate knew that Jesus was a spiritual or local political threat to these leaders' power and authority. He knew that this Jesus wasn't guilty. He knew that this was all local politics. So he figured the people will ask for Jesus to be released. After all, just a week earlier, Jesus had come into Jerusalem and the people had shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Surely they'll say, release Jesus to us. Verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? With this one that you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Then he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. As we said last week, flogging was done with a whip called the cat of nine tails. You know, when we think of a whip, we might think of that big bull whip that Indiana Jones used. But this whip didn't have one long end. This whip had at least 
maybe nine ends. I mean, that's why they called it the nine tails. And each end would have had pieces of glass or bone or rock woven into it so that it would tear at the flesh of the victim. It was a horrific form of torture. To be honest, when I saw the movie Passion of the Christ, it was the flogging scene that was the hardest for me to watch. The crucifixion scene was not, to me, as brutal as the flogging scene. And then he was handed over to be crucified. Now, verse 16 says, The soldiers led Jesus into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers, and they put a purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him and began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. So they hit him, they beat him, they mock him, and then they would get down on a knee and say, Oh, great King. And they would make a mockery of who Jesus was. And when they had mocked him, verse 20, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, this place Golgotha was outside of the city gates, but it was very public and very visible. And they offer him the wine mixed with myrrh, and it was a way to dull the pain. It was actually a form of Roman mercy. If we can just give you a little something to help. What we're about to do is so horrific and grotesque But even then, we're not barbarians. We have some mercy. But Jesus would not take it because he endured the fullness of God's wrath and God's justice for you and for me. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. So whatever remaining possessions Jesus had was divided among his executioners. Verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So this is a way for the Romans to mock. And they said, here is this man that you hailed as your king. He came in and you, you proclaimed his praise a week ago. And here we are, the great Roman Empire, and we're killing him. This great king of yours, we're, we're crucifying him. It's amazing how many people mock God, mock his word, and yet they do so by proclaiming things that are true. Verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, 
Come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. See, they wouldn't lower themselves like the common people to mock him directly, but behind his back to each other, they were quietly saying things like, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who crucified, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now we know from the other gospels that one of those crucified with him heaped insults. But the other said, what are you doing? This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus said, because of your faith, today you will be with me in paradise. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Mark most likely wrote his gospel in Greek. Greek was what they called the the lingua franca, the language of doing business in the Roman Empire. And if you were in Alexandria down in Egypt or in Jerusalem or up in what's now Turkey, if you were in Greek or even if you were as far west as what's now Spain or France, part of the Roman Empire. You could speak Greek to do business with other parts of the Roman Empire. Latin was the language of of Rome. So if you were Roman, you probably spoke Latin, and then you spoke Greek to connect with other parts of the Roman Empire. Jesus would have primarily spoken Aramaic, which was the language of doing business in the Middle East. And so if you lived on the Mediterranean coast and you wanted to do business with uh, traders coming east from Persia or what's now Iraq or Syria, you would have spoken Aramaic to understand them. And so if you spoke Greek and you spoke Aramaic, you could do business with everyone. The reason that Mark is putting this in the, the Hebrew is he wants his readers to understand that Jesus cried out and he puts it in. These are the actual words that Jesus spoke. Not a translation. These are the actual words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling out for Elijah. Because Elijah would sound similar to Eloi, Eloi. And so in their language, they, it would have been something similar. I, I suppose it would be like saying if somebody cried out, my God, my God, but, but they're straining. They're, he's, he's crucified. His wrists and his feet have nails, spikes driven through it. And every time just to breathe, he has to lift himself up and it causes incredible agony to just breathe and to get enough breath to say words, Aloy, Aloy. And if you, you are at a distance and you're having trouble just breathing to speak, it's easy to understand. My God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? And somebody goes, oh, he's calling out for his friend Miguel. Miguel, Miguel, why have you forsaken me? And so what he's trying to get across is the suffering. If you lived in the Roman Empire, you would have seen a crucifixion. Crucifixions were the common way of executing people. It was very public. So as, as he writes this, they would have understood, oh, they misunderstood him. And in their misunderstanding, they mocked him. They would have understood that to even say those words would have caused incredible effort and pain and agony. It says that someone ran when they heard him calling out and they filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus. So, you know, they took a sp- some I don't know what it was. I don't think it was a sponge like we think of a sponge, but it was some kind of rag or something that could soak up this wine vinegar. And, and they held it up on a staff so that Jesus could just wet his lips. But the crowd said, no, leave him alone. See if Elijah comes to take him down. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the son of God. It says that it went dark. Darkness covered the land. It says that the temple curtain was torn in two. These are both miraculous events. Was there some historically traceable eclipse or was, the, was it a storm or was it something supernatural? I don't know. I've seen people try to prove that it was an eclipse and maybe it was. But whatever was happening was a natural response to the supernatural thing happening. And somebody who's skeptical might say, well, that's a special pleading. You're just, you're just trying to make up some kind of superstitious nonsense. I, I make no apology I unapologetically believe in the supernatural. And we believe that when Jesus died, all of the sins of the world were placed upon his shoulders. That God saw his death and said, that satisfies the justice for the evils of this world. So if the land darkens supernaturally, That's hardly the craziest thing, I believe. It says that the curtain was torn in two. That curtain in the temple divided the people from the holy place where God's presence dwelled. And I believe that that God was showing that the division between God and people caused by sin had been removed through Jesus' worthy sacrifice his worthy death on our behalf on the cross. Verse 40, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. We know that his mother Mary was there among these women. Verse 42, it was the preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. 
Now, some people will try to tell you that Jesus was crucified not on Friday, but on Thursday. I don't think it matters. I don't try to get into that argument. I've, I've read and heard uh, people giving their opinion that way, and I think it's interesting, but I don't think it matters. And to the Jewish mind, a day begins not at sunrise, but at sunset. The Sabbath starts at sundown Friday and ends at sundown Saturday. So to say it was the day before, it could have easily been Friday morning for our way of thinking and still been the day before the Sabbath. So it's one of those things I don't think it's worth getting worked up about. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. So he was one of those who would have been there as Jesus was tried illegally. A prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth or some linen cloth and took down the body and wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So Joseph, who had been part of the ruling council, in Jesus' death now proclaims his belief in Jesus. And these women saw where Joseph had laid the body, which is important for what we're about to read. Verse 1, chapter 16, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go out to anoint Jesus' body. So the Sabbath ends sundown Saturday, and then they go out to whoever was selling spices, the, the burial spices, and they bought them so the next morning they could go and honor Jesus. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and each asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. I've always appreciated their faith. They went to honor and and show love towards and for Jesus. And they didn't know how they were going to accomplish it. They knew that there was a large stone, a large boulder in the way of the tomb. They didn't know how they were going to get it open, but they went anyway. I love that. And when they got there, they saw that the tomb was rolled away. And they asked each other, who, uh, sorry, verse four, when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. So they, they look into the tomb and they see where the body is supposed to be. And sitting next to that, because these caves would have had places cut into the stone where a body would be laid. You, you didn't put just one body in there. Eventually a whole family would go to rest in there. But there's nothing in there. And sitting next to where the body's supposed to be is this young man. It's not Jesus. It's, it's somebody they've never seen. And he's dressed all in white, which biblically is usually an indication of an angelic being. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, the other gospels say that Jesus appeared to them in Jerusalem. And I have no trouble with that. I don't believe there's a conflict. I read a lot of history on my own for fun. I read a biography of Winston Churchill during World War II. And now I'm reading a biography of de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle, the French uh, resistance leader during World War II. Both biographies cover the same events, but they cover them from different perspectives and they choose to emphasize one part of the story over the other. Nobody says, well, one says this and one says that. Well, they can't be true. Yet we apply a different standard when it comes to the Gospels. We don't expect that a overall history of World War II in Europe will have all of the detail of a history of only D-Day. Yet people apply that to the Gospels. Jesus met them in, Jeru in Jerusalem. Other Gospels give us that. Jesus went ahead of them to Galilee. That's also true. And if we were fair and even in how we approach history, we wouldn't have any problems or see any contradictions. And I found, by the way, this one's free. Most of the supposed contradictions in the scripture that people come and say, you can't trust the Bible because it contradicts itself. I found that most of the contradictions that people claim are this sort of thing where it's not really a contradiction, it's just a different perspective, or it's emphasizing one part of the story over another, and we have no trouble with that in our own recent history, so why should we have any trouble with it in biblical history? Now, most of your Bibles will say this, between verse 8 and verse 9, it will say the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. Some people tell you that verses 9 through 20 of the Gospel of Mark were not originally there and they were added later by later scribes. I am not troubled if that is the case because ending Mark's Gospel in verse 8, you have a risen Jesus, you have hope, you have belief, you have faith. That being said, it's just a personal hobby horse of mine. I believe that these verses were included at the beginning of Mark's gospel, or they were included soon after. And what I mean by that is this. It's possible that Mark was writing his gospel, and we know that he was likely writing it in Rome during a time of persecution. It's very possible that before he could finish writing, he was arrested, he had to flee, and that somebody included the last few verses after the fact. We actually know because early church fathers quote these last few verses from the Gospel of Mark. And we have manuscripts older than the earliest biblical manuscripts that quote these verses. So I'm not going to get into this. This is like something that interests me and I don't think interests most people. But I, I believe firmly that these verses should be in our scripture. So take that for what you will. I, I appreciate the transparency of Christian scholarship that says, hey, we're just going to be honest 
There are some people who don't think these should be here and others who think they do. And so we're going to include them, but we're going to let you know that there's a disagreement. I appreciate the transparency. And I'll just let you know personally that I firmly believe that these verses should be here. Verse nine, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So there's nothing in here that isn't confirmed by other gospel writers or by the book of Acts. That, that everything that's in these verses is confirmed elsewhere. There is that weird thing about handling snakes, but we know that the apostle Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake on the island of Malta and he didn't die. And actually the people there took that as a miraculous confirmation that his message about Jesus was true. To me, the thing to emphasize is that Jesus has risen from the dead. He is not dead. He is living. He is not distant, but he, but he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he is actively at work in this world through his Holy Spirit, working in and through the lives of his people. I want to close with a few thoughts here. What do we learn? Verse 1, verse 15, verse 20. We see the Jews and the Gentiles, the Romans, complicit in the death of Jesus. We see the ruling elite, the elders and the Sanhedrin, Pilate, the governor. And in verse 20, we see common people, the soldiers. And, and later on, we see common people standing at the crucifixion site mocking Jesus. Everyone is guilty. The elite and the common, the Jew and Gentile. Even there's people from Europe, the Romans. There's people from Asia. Because if you don't look at a map, Asia, Israel is in Asia. Jesus was Asian. I'm going to let that sink in. Jesus was Asian. The Jews. And then this fellow Simon, the Cyrene, would have likely been an African person. Everyone was there in some way contributing to the death of Jesus. Everyone is guilty. Verse 32, they said, why doesn't he come down? He saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? He could have. He went willingly because of his great love. We learn that all of us are guilty 
The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that God so loved the world. The world is everyone that he gave his only son that whoever, again, anyone who believes in him will not perish, will not die, will not face hell, but have everlasting life. That's what we've learned. What questions are we left with? Why did Jesus have to suffer so extremely? Can I tell you the truth? I think he didn't have to suffer so extremely. Jesus had to die. There's no question about that. Somebody had to pay the price for our sins. But had the people recognized what God was doing, I believe they still would have had to kill him. Did he have to suffer so extremely? No, that's just the result of sinful people doing sinful things. Jesus in verse 34 cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God the Father really forsake or abandon God the Son? Or did the God part of Jesus not get abandoned, but the human part of Jesus get abandoned? There are endless theories, speculations, or ideas about what that verse means. It's a mystery. And I have found that if you can't be okay with a little bit of mystery in your Christian faith, you're just going to have a hard time. We know that in some way, Jesus at the very least felt abandoned. And it's, I have no trouble believing that in some way that I cannot comprehend or wrap my brain around that the the Jesus who took the sins of the world, what the Bible says that he who did not know any sin became sin for us, that in that moment, somehow God did turn his back on Jesus and did forsake him. And I don't claim to understand fully what that means or how it's possible. I just know that it's true. How does this affect me now? How does this affect you now? The crucifixion, verse 43, tells us that the crucifixion changed the life of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a secret believer, or at least he hoped that Jesus would be the one, be the Messiah. And it was the crucifixion that caused Joseph to go boldly before Pilate and declare his love for Jesus. The resurrection changed Mary and these other women, the other Mary, the other Salome. The first person to preach, to declare, to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus was Mary Magdalene. A woman was the first gospel preacher. You want to know my stance on women preaching? It's that. Mary was changed by the resurrection. Joseph was changed by the crucifixion. And then there's Peter. And remember last week, we learned that Peter denied Jesus three times. But what is it that the angel told Mary? Go and tell his disciples and Peter. And when we get to the book of Acts, which we studied a few years ago at Faith on Hill, we see that Peter, who had denied Jesus, who had hid, who had fled, was the person who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached Jesus, the resurrected Savior, to thousands in the city of Jerusalem. And at least 2,000 gave their lives to Jesus that day. And there were 
many more who did not. So thousands and thousands of people, because Peter's heart was changed, his life was changed through the work of God the Holy Spirit. How has God changed you? I, I think that God uses all kinds of ways to get a hold of people. Joseph was changed because of the crucifixion. Mary was changed because of the resurrection. Peter was changed through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So how has God gotten a hold of you? How has God changed you? What would you say, this is how God worked in my life? And how can God change you? I'm so thankful. You know, the world kind of says, this is who you are. And God doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're 18 or you're 28 or you're 38 or you're 58 or you're 78 or you're 108. God's not done with us. And whether you were Joseph that was a secret believer, made bold, you were Peter who had just messed up all over the place, whether you're Mary who society had no interest in because their society did not value women the way that, that God values women, whoever you are, however people look at you and they say, ah, oh, that's just who that person is. There's, they're not going to change. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. And God says, watch me. Watch me. Mark was writing this gospel to a church in time of trouble, a, a church in a time of persecution, a church in Rome that was what the Bible calls spiritual Babylon. They weren't the dominant culture. They were exiles, strangers in a strange land. But he believed that the hope of the good news of Jesus is what they needed. And I believe that the hope of the good news, the gospel of Jesus is what our world needs today. We live in troubled times. And our world needs the gospel. The church needs the gospel today. Whether it's re, you know, you're, you're not a believer and you need to come to terms with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, like Joseph of Arimathea did. Or maybe like, like Mary or like Peter, you are a believer, but God has more for you. And you know, I know that I'm saved. I know that God loves me, but he wants to empower me to bring hope into a world in trouble and in chaos. That to me is the lasting message of, of Mark's gospel is that we have a message of hope and we don't just have hopeful words, but we have power to back it up as God works in us and through us. God isn't finished with you. God has plans for you. And no matter what you've done, Joseph was a secret believer Peter was a, a betrayer and a denier. Mary overlooked by her society. We're told here that, that she had been uh, demonically possessed and afflicted, and yet Jesus healed her. And then Jesus used her for his glory. Becoming a Christian isn't just about getting out of hell. Oh, you better become a Christian before you die so that you can go to heaven and not burn in hell. No, becoming a Christian is about living in the blessing and the power and the victory of God today, here, and now. And Jesus got a hold of these people's lives 
just as he's getting a hold of our lives and he wants to get a hold of your life. And he's doing that same work today. And next week we'll start a series telling the story of what God is doing and of the Christian faith, but know that your story is not set in stone, that Jesus can take whatever your story is and make something beautiful from it. Wherever you are, if you're watching this at home, on your couch, you're watching this on your phone, on your computer, you're watching this Sunday morning or Thursday night, it doesn't matter where you are, just know that God hears you. And wherever you're at, however you feel prompted to respond, cry out to God. Jesus will hear your prayers. If you have any questions, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. We're here every Sunday morning at 1030 online and in person. God bless you.